Hello, and welcome back to Deep End Public Education. My name is Kristen Grubbs, and I'm grateful you've decided to join me for today's episode. In my last episode, I shared what Missouri law says about furnishing pornographic material to minors, and I gave a couple examples of books that are currently in libraries in my local public school district. In today's episode, I'll be talking about what happens when children are exposed to pornographic materials and how that exposure can affect their future. Then, I'll share with you my own analysis of how the practice of providing pornographic content to minors cannot carry on in a school district that claims that the dignity of each student needs respected. Now, hop on in and let's get swimming in the deep end of public education. For those of you who may be wondering what is so terrible about pornographic materials being in the hands of our children, I'd like to share with you a resource I've found to be quite enlightening. It's a website called yourbrainonporn.com. The website has a seemingly endless supply of scientific studies involving pornography and its effects on the brain. There's been an outcry over the last few years for people to follow the science and trust the science. Okay, then let's see what the science has to say on this issue. In 2011, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh reported in the Journal of Neuroscience that electrode recordings of adult and adolescent brain cell activity during the performance of a reward-driven task show that adolescent brains react to rewards with far greater excitement than adult brains. In the study, the researchers presented adult and adolescent rats which exhibit behavioral and biological similarities to adult and teenage humans, with three holes to poke their noses through. The rats each received a sugar pellet when they chose the center hole. Brain activity in the adolescents was similar to that of adults most of the time, but striking differences arose when the younger rats retrieved rewards, as each of the adult rats collected a sugar pellet the orbitofrontal cortex neurons showed the normal increase in both excitation and inhibition, with consistent levels of each impulse throughout the study. Adolescents, on the other hand, exhibited surges of excitation that ranged from twice to four times the levels in adults. At the same time, the inhibitory impulses in the adolescents' brains barely changed from the low levels they experienced before receiving the sugar pellet. To simplify, the adolescent rats were less inhibited and more excitable than the adults. How does this translate to humans? In another study in 2011, researchers surveyed children ages 10 to 15 years old in three waves over 36 months asking questions regarding their intentional pornography use, sexual aggression victimization, and perpetration of sexual aggression, like in-person sexual assault, technology-based sexual harassment, and solicitation. 23% of youth reported intentional exposure to pornography in the past, and 5% reported perpetrating sexually aggressive behavior. Less than 5% of teens reported exposure to sexually violent pornography. Youth who reported intentional exposure to pornography were 6.5 times more likely to report perpetration of sexually aggressive behaviors when compared with youth not reporting intentional pornography use. 
Youth reporting exposure to sexually violent pornography were 24 times more likely to perpetrate sexually aggressive behaviors in comparison with the non-pornography viewing peers. This increased likelihood of engaging in sexually aggressive behaviors was not gender specific. Both boys and girls viewing pornography, especially sexually violent pornography, were much more likely to engage in sexually aggressive behaviors. To see how this plays out into adulthood, the same article highlighting the study of sexual aggression summarizes the effect of pornography on adults, saying, Evidence suggests that excessive and compulsive pornography use has effects on the brain similar to those seen in substance addictions, including a decline in working memory performance, neuroplasticity changes that reinforce use, and reduction in gray matter volume. Magnetic resonance scans in adults have shown the brain activity of individuals who are self-perceived pornography addicts are comparable to those with substance dependence. Considering the information I've laid out for you so far in these brief excerpts, how does the idea of pornographic content before our children sound to you now? These are summaries of just a handful of studies. Again, you can find an endless supply of scientific research on this topic on yourbrainonporn.com. So when the adolescent brain is in that transition from dependency on adults to independency, increasing risk-taking and decreasing inhibitions, would it be wise to expose it to pornographic content? If exposure can cause more excitation than in an adult, and that reward of excitation reinforces the reward, tending to increase use of pornographic content, leading to addiction, is this really a healthy option for our children? Even more concerning is something called the Coolidge effect. This is when a sexually active person, or rat as in the study, grows bored with their mate or their current stimuli. But when introduced to a new set of stimuli, be it a new partner or new sexual behavior or imagery, their sexual arousal is revived and they find new excitement. This process can continue into strange new behaviors, kinky or deviant sex, even bestiality. Is this what we want for our children? Some might say it's a stretch to say a book in a school library leads a child to sadomasochism. But if we follow the science, I'm not reaching at all. In last week's school board meeting, the president of my local school board cut off a citizen sharing concern about the pornographic content in our school libraries when he started to read from a book my school district reviewed and unanimously decided to retain in December of 2021. The book is a collection of essays by the author about his childhood into his young adult years, including several graphically sexual encounters he experienced even including his older teenage cousin molesting him when he was 13 years old. The excerpt the citizen was reading during his three minutes of public comment time shared tidbit of a detailed sexual encounter in the book. He barely got half a dozen words out before the mic was cut. There was a shouting match between him and the board president as well as audience members. The board president had the citizen escorted out of the room, stating that public comment speakers are not to use profanity. The irony in all this 
is that he was reading a quote from the very book that the board president herself and six others voted to retain for her high school children to read. So it's okay for children to read it in private, but it's not okay for an adult to read it in a public school board meeting? Can you hear the hypocrisy in this? Because the citizen who spoke up was reading specifically from that book, as it had already been reviewed and retained, community members claimed the submission of complaints and the reading of pornographic material to be an attempt to silence a minority author, as the school board said his book represents a marginalized people group. The flaw in their argument is the fact that of the nearly 90 books that are now under review, I estimate at least 75% of them do not contain sexual scenes involving the LGBTQ community, for which their claims say these complaints are targeting to silence. I've said it repeatedly and I'll say it again. This is not about censoring free speech or silencing the LGBTQ community. The criteria that led to the list of books to file complaints on was merely the legal definition of how Missouri law details what material is pornographic for minors. It did not matter who was participating in the sexual scenes. It merely mattered what the sexual scenes detailed. This is quite a controversial issue, as anything relating to our right of free speech tends to be. But I hope I've at least given you some information to consider regarding the effect of pornography on the adolescent brain. This has been quite an informative swim so far in the deep end of public education, but let's now turn our direction toward the shiny new practice of focusing on dignity and the claim that every child is worthy and valued. As I shared in episodes five through eight about a book my school district is using for professional development called Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity. This book claims that every person has dignity and we must respect that dignity. I personally agree with that statement. Although the professional development book alters the definition of dignity to fit their needs, the real definition of dignity is valued or worthy. This means that if every person has dignity and that dignity must be respected, that means that every person is valued and worthy and that value and worth needs respected. What do we do with things we find worthy or valuable? We protect them, don't we? We take care of them. If they're living things, we do our best to nourish them and keep them healthy. What do people do with their valuable possessions like jewelry, their car, or even their home? They take care of it, maintain it, protect it. If we were to apply the same line of thinking to our children, as they are, at least to me, the most precious gift we could be trusted with, then shouldn't we be protecting them from harm? Shouldn't we be nourishing them and shielding them from anything that could cause damage to them in their future? Allowing our children to have access to and risk them being exposed to pornographic material is not protective, nor is it nourishing. As the scientific examples I shared reveal, pornography is already damaging enough to an adult. Allowing children to be exposed to such materials is even more damaging. As one of the previously mentioned studies pointed out, it contributes to a decline in mental stability and increases their likelihood of risky sexual behavior as well as sexual aggression and deviance. Maybe I'm overly cautious, but those risks don't seem worth the trouble. 
To say that this path is unhealthy is a gross understatement. I've had people who disagree with my claim that these materials are unhealthy state that they're doing no harm being made available to students. My motherly intuition and science disagree. The argument is whether these materials should be made available at our public schools. Would we put cocaine on the salad bar in our school cafeterias? That may seem like an extreme metaphor, but if an addiction to pornography can cause the same chemical reaction in the brain as a drug addiction, how is that so different? Students could choose whether to partake without being forced, similar to our school libraries where these books are not assigned but offered as a free selection. Why don't we put cocaine on the salad bar? Because we know it's unhealthy. We know it's illegal. We know it can be extremely addictive. If students were to partake of the illegal substance on the salad bar, the likelihood of their life path making a beeline into unhealthy habits and riskier behavior increases immensely. Here's my quandary with this whole situation. How can adults claim that children are valued and worthy then risk them being exposed to materials that could dramatically alter their life path in such a negative way. I have trouble with this whole idea that these materials being made available in our library causes no harm since they're not assigned reading, and students can choose to stop reading if they find language that is sexually explicit. Here's the truth of the matter. Adolescent brains, as science continues to prove time and time again, are not developed enough to make as sensible choices as they are later into adulthood. The prefrontal cortex is still developing well into the early to mid-20s, so students are not neurologically reliable enough to make wise and healthy choices about such matters. Adults who think children are mature enough to make such risky life choices, whether it be about sex or other heavy choices with lifelong consequences, need to dig deeper into the science of it all and reassess their position. Besides, what message does this send our children? If every child has dignity, and that dignity is worth mass movements for equity in our schools, then how come the adults that are preaching dignity and equity are the same adults putting materials in their reach that could have long-lasting destructive consequences? Do you think this expresses their value and their worth? I don't. Consider with me for a moment Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. For those of you not familiar, I'll run through it real quick. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs is organized into a pyramid structure with the first and most important need at the bottom, laying the base, and each additional need stacked on top, just like a pyramid is built. Once the bottom layer is built, the most basic but also most important need of all people then each of the five needs move up the pyramid towards the tip, but in descending order of priority. Maslow's hierarchy of needs read as follows. The bottom layer, and most important, is psychological needs, like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, and reproduction. The next layer up, and second need, is safety needs, as in personal security, employment, resources, health, and property. The third and middle need is love and belonging, like friendship, intimacy, family, and sense of connection. The fourth need is esteem, including respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, and freedom. 
The fifth and last need, the tip of the pyramid and lowest priority, is self-actualization, which is the desire to become the most that one can be. If we consider this hierarchy of needs, as early psychologist Abraham Maslow stated in his 1943 paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, once the basic needs like air, water, food, shelter, and clothing are met, the next priority is safety. Children need to feel safe. They need to feel secure. They need to feel cared for. When a child doesn't feel secure, when they don't feel protected, it is difficult for them to move on to the next need in Maslow's hierarchy being love and belonging. Dignity, equity, and inclusion practices, policies, and training seem to be attempting to reorder the hierarchy by putting belonging before safety and security. The attempt to include these books to give a voice to a marginalized people group, as my school board stated it in December of 2021, is actually creating a level of distrust and insecurity for our students. It sends a message that counters their claim that everyone is valuable and worthy. If our students are so valuable, then why aren't our schools protecting them from harmful materials? How can they feel secure when they've been given access to the metaphorical liquor cabinet in the school libraries? They've been given the opportunity to take their underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes to the library and pick out materials that could possibly alter the way they make decisions that could end in lifelong consequences despite the fact that they're already more likely to choose risky behavior and be less inhibited by negative outcomes. We are their parents. We are their protectors. We are supposed to be sheltering them from the dangers of the world so they feel secure. Realization of safety and security is what leads to a child opening up to the love and care that is around them. Tread with me here as we venture back into our own lives. Think back to a time when you felt lonely or dismissed. Maybe you were being bullied at school or at work and your attempt to report it went unheard, unaddressed. Were you away from the ones you loved? Were you in a strange new place? Did you feel secure? Did you feel safe? Now, think back to a time in your life when you felt loved and cared for. Maybe at home or at a friend's house where you knew the doors locked to keep strangers out and the people inside the house would watch over you. Were you in a safe place? Were you protected from danger, secure from the harmful things of this world? It is utterly important that our children feel safe and secure at school. When we tell them that they are valuable but allow pornographic material in our libraries, we're sending mixed signals. The two messages cannot exist in unison. If being inclusive is of such importance that material that is pornographic for minors is allowed into school libraries, violating Missouri law, then the priority is not the safety and security of the children. The mere inclusion of these materials violates the law. This not only says inclusivity is more important than their future mental health, but it says that violating the law is okay. If creating a safe environment for our students to feel secure in is more important, then the materials that are pornographic for minors need removed. Those who would like to find the books that are removed can go to the public library or Amazon or any other bookstore that carries them. 
Removing them is not silencing those voices, those stories. What it's doing is sending a message to the children in the schools that their mental health, their sexual health, and their relational health is more important than their need to access those books at this time in their lives. Our schools cannot preach dignity while also allowing our kids to access porn. These two elements are not compatible. There's an element to this whole debate that seems to be ignored. To explain, I'll use the book I previously mentioned that has already been reviewed and retained in my school district. The book, as I first described, tells about the author's life experiences, several of them deeply traumatizing. The author, George Johnson, wrote of these sexual encounters and how it affected him in his development into young adulthood. He's marketing it for children as young as 13. Why? Why does he think sharing his traumatic experiences with young children is appropriate? Yes, I understand that some think that it can be healing, but why should other children be burdened with the adult experiences that were forced on him as a child? Why is it appropriate to expect other children to understand him better if they know what he went through? If a five-year-old is molested and raped, would it be okay for that five-year-old to tell their peers about their experiences so that other five-year-olds will understand them better, include them in their group, and give them that sense of belonging? It is one thing for that five-year-old to get counseling, to work through and overcome that abuse that was forced on them, but it's quite another to force the retelling of that trauma on others that age and call it inclusion and belonging. No child should have to take on such adult burdens, regardless of the age, be it 5, 10, or 15. No child should be exposed to such adult behaviors in the name of equity and inclusion. Protecting our children is more important. Let's correct this mixed message being sent to our children and show them that they are worthy of protecting. Let's show them they are valuable enough to protect and that their futures are worth it. If dignity is your goal, then prove it. Show how valuable our children are by securing them like you do your most prized possessions. Thank you for joining me for today's swim in the deep end of public education. I hope I've given you some food for thought and healthy conversation. Now let's get out there and take a stand for our children. Let's protect our babies. I appreciate your continued support of my podcast, and I hope you'll choose to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends, your families, and everyone you know. If you'd like more information on the studies I mentioned in this episode, I'll share the links on my Deep End of Public Education Facebook page. If you'd like to read more about what I've been finding and how I found it in my local school district to guide you through your district's deep waters, you can find my book, Deep End of Public Education, on Amazon. A general search for my book title will only lead you to my podcast, so you'll have to narrow the search results to all books. This is because I tagged my book as having adult content because I quote two paragraphs from All Boys Aren't Blue, the book I was just talking about in my district, in my chapter about pornography in our school libraries. I refuse to take that adult designation off, so Amazon makes my book a little harder to find despite the book that I quote being easy to find and marketed to 13 plus. This is the world we live in, people. Thank you again for wetting your toes today in the deep end of public education. Now go, be bold, and 